Hello and welcome to the Be Less Dumb podcast. It's basically me chatting to a bunch of coaches who are more intelligent than I am and work in different areas than I am used to. I'm just going to ask them a bunch of questions and try to become a little less dumb in the process. Hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome to today's podcast. In this episode, we have Noel Fitzgibbon back on again. Uh, Noel was on a previous podcast, I think the second one that I'd done. And we talked about loads of things. We talked about Olympic weightlifting. We talked about injuries leading up to European championships, tapering and peaking. Today, we're going to do things a little bit different. We're going to talk about a paper that Noel wrote on critiquing the Canadian LTAD model. Um, so just to give you, before we start, I thought I'd just give you another quick insight into Noel, just in case you had uh, you didn't hear the first podcast. Noel has his Bachelor's of Strength and Conditioning in, um, from LIT. He has... Uh, since then, he's been working in Canada and Calgary in a personal training setup, and he's been writing for the NTS as well. So what we're going to talk about today, as I said, we're going to look at the Canadian LTAD model, but more specifically, we're going to take a look into the, the recommendations they have for strength and power. Um, so just a quick, tell you quickly what the LTAD model is. It's a long-term athlete development model in which the uh, researchers attempted to kind of, you know, objectively quantify areas of trainability or windows opportunity for kids to train certain aspects of sport and this was kind of based on their peak height velocity and if you don't know what peak height velocity is basically it's a stage of growth where kind of outside of the baby's first year of life the most rapid growth in overall body height happens so no the first question i'm going to throw to you and thank you for being on today is just kind of tell me how to distinguish these areas of trainability Sure. And uh, thank you for having me as well, Danny. Um, yeah, so basically with the areas of trainability, uh, they pretty much just describe it as an area of time surrounding peak height velocity when the um, the child is particularly, um, when the child can be affected particularly well by some sort of training. So, in the Canadian LTAD model, they have different areas of trainability for, yeah, for strength, for endurance, for power, for all of these different things that, yeah, basically they've just uh, taken a time period in and around peak height velocity that, yeah, the, the child's responsiveness is at a high, basically. Yeah. Um, so tell me, kind of tell me, first of all, first thing we're touching on is maybe the issues with Using timing or peak height velocity, do you want to go through that a little bit first? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so because I, I wrote a paper giving a, or while well, I'm in the middle of trying to publish a paper, uh, giving a critique on the Canadian long term athlete development model. And um, the main issues with it is that uh, it's all, all, all the models for pretty much, well, all the Canadian model is based off of um, like a chronological age. Uh, so, just an example of like something is that yes uh, strength might they might i think it says that strength is best trained 12 months after peak height velocity um but then they give a very generalized um estimation of when peak height velocity hits so basically what it says if it says that it should be trained 12 months peak height velocity the canadian long-term athlete development model says that a boy hits peak height velocity at 13 when in reality a boy could hit it at anywhere between 11 and a half to 14 years old. Um, and they say that the girl hits it at 11 and the variability in girls is even greater. So, yeah. So that's kind of the main issue I think with it. Yeah. So there's, I guess there's, you know, there's a 
huge area of variability there to kind of so to develop any one protocol of something like that leads to a lot of you know law of averages and stuff like that having an effect on it um so before we kind of get into the strength stuff i guess something that we should probably state and I'm, i've read your paper of course in in preparation for this and one point that was kind of interesting is that most of the research that's done on these kind of areas is seems to be done on males so we have a bit of information on male and we'll, we'll talk about that as we go along but when it, what that does, it kind of leads to us making assumptions on females, you know, I mean, I didn't see too many papers in both looking at this paper you wrote and researching for this that showed any kind of information when it came to females. Um, so that's just a, probably a point to, to, to take before we go deeper into this is that we are predominantly talking about males today, just because that's where the research, the research kind of lays. Um, okay, so we'll start with strength training. We'll start with uh, what they recommend for strength training. And you kind of touched on it a little bit there and, and they kind of talk about post peak high velocity. And now, first of all, first thing you think is, you know, they, they do prefer, they, they do say, sorry, that the effect of strength training on coordination is a big issue. And that's why they say peak height velocity or, or sorry, post peak height velocity. And that makes sense. You know, a lot of kids when they hit their peak height velocity become quote unquote gangly and lose kind of their coordination. So putting in some kind of coordination work is a good idea. Then they recommend kind of, um, post peak height velocity for guys 12 to 18 months and immediately for girls now once again we don't have a whole lot of research to kind of back up or argue against the girls one but we'll have a look at say tell me a little bit about the research you found kind of either saying this is right saying this is wrong and what's what basically critiquing it yeah sure um yeah so well yeah because the research with strength was like to, to be honest, it was kind of all over the place. Um, like because there was there was a big paper in Belgium in Belgium uh, done by I think it was uh, Philippe Philippeert was the name of the guy that did it in two thousand six, and he he measured um yeah uh, strength in in like adolescent soccer players, and basically he found that upper body strength their window of trainability peaked right at peak height velocity um whereas the lower body strength peaked i think it was within a year of peak height velocity so even that little variation in upper body strength versus lower body strength there was a huge difference um and then with that as well there was a paper in uh like by mckelvey a guy in 2002 who he showed that uh, 26% of um, like a final final adult bone is accumulated within the two years surrounding peak height velocity. So uh, in what Philip Hayert said is that you should pretty much train in and around peak height velocity and that's when you should start because that's when they're the most responsive. Isn't even what kind of McKelvey says because he says it's actually great to start it a year before because that's kind of when the majority of your bone actually accumulates which and even that's great for sporting performance but it's also good for the reduction of osteoporosis at a later age and everything uh, and just reducing bone injuries as a whole so yeah just with and then even with that uh, in terms of lower body strength there's there's a lot of variation just in between what what people say is best um and then as you said as well there's practically no research out there on females which um to go back to the canadian ltad model they say that peak height velocity 
hits for females right at 11 years old. But in reality, you don't even really know because there's absolutely no research of females. So that's kind of my thoughts. Yeah. What I found. Yeah. And I, I mean, just from reading your, your um, report as well, um, there are people that generally do agree a little bit with it as well, that it would be peak height velocity, uh, post-peak height velocity, sorry. I'm looking back at the paper from 19, is it 1988, where they say, you know, the adolescent is most responsive to strength and power training six to 12 months post-peak height velocity. Um, but they also say that, you know, the, the, the beginning in the rise of responsiveness happens, you know, <laughs> 18 months prior to peak height velocity. And that kind of, you know, for one, they're, they're saying that, you know, to, to the, the area of trainability is huge, right? So to say that it should be, 12 to 18 months post-peak height velocity for boys is kind of probably not doing justice to how big the area of trainability probably is. So they're looking for five specific train areas of trainability when realistically there's probably a bigger one there, you know? Um, so I guess that kind of leads me on oh. to, um, first of all, is there any other, any other research you want to talk about in relation to that? Or, and then the kind of follow-up question, I guess, would be, what would you recommend, right? So we're critiquing it. And every time you critique something, you kind of want to be able to give some kind of an answer so you're not just adding to the issue, trying to solve the problem as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think what you said is, um, yeah, it, it, it is a good point. Um, and and even with that as well, like there there was a couple, yeah, there's a couple bit, bit of research as well that showed that like the interference effect isn't really that strong with teenagers as well. So um, even like, okay, maybe, yeah, if you in an ideal world have an exact area of time where it's perfect to train sprinting. It might not even fully be beneficial because uh, like you might be hampering their endurance um, potential, their strength potential EDC. Um, but yeah, and in terms of recommendations, um, it, to be honest, it is, I, I, it's hard to give a generalized recommendation because there is so much um, variability in it. What I think the, if you've ever read the sports gene by David Epstein, he talks a lot about it and like uh, in how the sampling of different sports at a, that a young age is, is probably the best thing for it. Like he talked about how Vasily um, Lomachev, the boxer like did Ukrainian dance or something at 12 or 13 years old, which he to this day still attributes some of his boxing skill to. Um, so I think, I think if you're, yeah, like, it, it's very hard to give a direct recommendation because the research is so all over the place. So what, what I what I would recommend if if you have these kids, aside from the ones that have like been shown to have to be early specialized, like gymnastics, diving, those kind of ones, I think the best thing is just to give a large sampling of sports and to not shy away from doing some sort of strength works. Like I think 12 to 13 years, years old, year olds should be able to just do some body weight squats, be able to like not, not even deadlift a barbell, but be able to dead, like pick something up in a good, strong fashion and just have like a relatively well-rounded strength program that surrounds the different samplings of sports that they would give would be my generalized recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, mate. I mean, I think if anyone has ever listened to this podcast will know that I, I've dealt mostly in youth sports and in youth basketball, and they're probably sick to fucking death with me talking about it. But this kind of, it kind of works into here. I mean, yesterday I was on a podcast talking about like an eight phase approach, we eight phased approach we took for strength training, 
and they it's not rocket science you know you're, you're like okay well i i've got a squad of so many athletes right and i've got um so am i gonna you know have 36 different peak height velocities and try and measure it and all this kind of stuff and then fit a train to that or am i gonna say okay well i could spend so much time wasting so much time on that or i could say i'm gonna set these kids up over a two-year period on a linear progress program which starts with like you said body weight squats, maybe an introduction to landing mechanics, and then you add in resistance bands, whether that be bands around the knees or, you know, resistance bands when you're doing, say, bent over rows and stuff like that, slowly bring them onto a single leg landing mechanics and then tell them, teach them a little bit more about tempo so they have a good control over their body. Then maybe take a, when they're off in the summer, maybe take more of an approach of trying to get them to learn the kind of basics of plyometrics and we'll get onto strength and power, sorry, speed and power in a second and then progress it on. So now we add in, you know, we add in, say, uh, uh, weighted so dumbbells barbells whatever as they get a little bit older and maybe teach them the different training methods such as be eccentric isometric so they're not overloading too much and they're getting good control of their body and then start to tell them how to move weights faster and stuff like that it's not rocket science you know to, to, to set out a program um, and that's a very general assumption but mm. you know every, to kind of say that there's a specific time that you should train strength I mean, why only, I mean, just because their most rapid response is there, would you not want them have perfected a technique of strength training at that point already? So you're not teaching them strength training, you know, because they're going to have a rapid response and beginner gains to strength training anyway. So I, I would always be on the, on the case that maybe if you have an idea of when their most rapid response to strength training would be, then make sure they're prepared fully to do some decent strength training. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think with the work that you did with Basketball Ireland, you would probably you would have more um, uh, applicable experience than like myself or pretty much anyone. Um, yeah, yeah, and like I think that's what yeah, basically what you did is just took something that um, the Canadian LTAD model attempted to describe over however many textbooks. And you just described it in a way simpler way in like two minutes, which I think is, yeah, is an important point to get across in terms of coaches coaching 12 to 13 year olds. And that like, you know, you, you can read something, um, however complicated it may be, but at the end of the day, yeah, simplifying it and kind of just going back to the basics and everything that you kind of said is pretty much what you need to do. And it's, it's, uh, proven to work. Whereas the other stuff there's like, if you try to, yeah make everything so detailed then you know it's not exactly proven that it's going to work as well as it says i guess yeah i mean i think it's the first rule of coaching right you, you have to kind of teach everyone to the most part as an individual um yeah so if you if you if you take a big general approach approach that this is when you should train peak height, uh, train after peak height velocity then you're kind of going against the first rule of coaching but you know i mean i mean we're going to get into speed and power in a second and um but yeah i guess I, I guess um, they are trying to do some good with this paper. And I don't know exactly, was it 2011 it was published? My, uh, yeah, it was Bali and Way. Uh, I think it was 2011. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Like so, I mean, I mean, we're, we're nine years post that now. So there is obviously people are going to get like, and anyone who knows anything about strength and conditioning knows that it's become in the last 10 years, it's become more apparent in every sport everyone's doing it now everyone's doing it to a high level even in, at the highest level sports maybe over this side of the world in america and canada they're probably a little bit ahead of the game and the russians but you talk about even premier league soccer players talking about what it was like 10 years ago to what it is now and that's trickling down so everyone's getting a better idea so the best research is probably going to come in the next 10 to 20 years of you know forward thinking coaching and stuff like that at all levels um but 
kind of i guess if we move on to um onto strength and power I guess if you want to give a quick maybe demo, uh, description of what maybe power and strength training is as power and explosive strength training is. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so basically, strength is um, like how like how much can you move? It's how many newtons can your muscle produce, really? Uh, so basically, the strength is yeah measured by a one rep max squat, a one rep max deadlift just that kind of way of like however much weight you can kind of push then explosive strength slash power is basically defined by rate of force development so if you take however much force you can kind of produce um you you might not be able to produce that extremely quickly um whereas rate of force development is about producing the force in a very very fast fashion so basically if you take a a power lifter a world record power lifter let's say um, Chuck Volopol or something. He's going to have a lot of strength, but he he might be able to produce it quickly, but not as quickly as Usain Bolt. Even though Usain Bolt has probably less amounts of absolute force that he can produce, he, whatever force he can produce, he can produce a lot quicker. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I guess what we'll do before we go into the research, I'll quickly state on what the LTAD model says about, say, explosive strength. So they talk about you know jumping, sprinting, stuff like that. Um, so there's two windows of trainability in a child's development. Um, they're kind of based off chronological age and not biological age. Uh, so they're saying seven to nine and 13 to 16, 16 years old. Um, and then the first kind of stage having emphasis on quickness and agility, with the second phase having an emphasis on power and acceleration. So I guess what we'll, 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 we'll talk about maybe the three methods that they use to, uh, four methods, sorry, that they use to measure it. So they have two forms of vertical jump, uh, one being a squat jump, one just being a vertical jump. Um, they use a broad jump, so a horizontal jump, and then they talk about sprinting. Um, I guess maybe first of all, kind of tell us what the research says, and then we'll tell, we'll maybe talk a little bit about the so many different things that affect these tests and how to accurately, I guess, test them and use them as valid research. Yeah, sure. And just to go back to one thing you said as well with um, with the the areas of trainability. So one one another um, uh, discrepancy in the research here is because uh, Cycling Canada says the areas are seven to nine and thirteen to sixteen, as you said, but Athletics Canada actually only says thirteen to sixteen years old for explosive strength. So there is a little bit more variability in there, um, and that's even between like official Canadian athletic um newsletters and stuff like that but yeah then to go back to go to your question um so yeah they they measured explosive strength through a lot like sometimes it was measured through a standing long jump which was horizontal power uh through a vertical jump which is yeah vertical power and then through sprinting and then there was a squat jump uh put in there as well so yeah basically that would just take away the kind of stretch the fast stretch shortening cycle a little bit um make it a i don't know a bit more of a like in the middle between a power and a strength exercise, a little bit more on the strength side of uh, power. But um, yeah, so they, they measured a lot of different things. And with it, they found basically standing long jump. There was that article by Philippe Arts again in uh, 2006. The standing long jump's best time to train was, um, it said 18 months pre-peak height velocity and then 12 months post-peak velocity for the standing long jump and the vertical jump was right at peak height velocity so even that little bit of a difference like if you're gonna 
jump forward instead of jumping higher. The research, and that was in the same paper as well. Uh, so it's not even uh, discrepancies between different research papers. The same paper gives discrepancies. So, and then with sprinting, um, there was a paper by Mendez Villanueva, uh, who he said that it was best to to uh, train at, at peak height velocity. But then there was a big discussion in this article because he talked about how there's very limited research on sprint mechanics. And obviously, if you're talking sprinting, sprint mechanics is probably going to be more beneficial for you than doing plyometrics, doing strength training. So, yeah, yeah, once again, just a lot of variability, a lot of discrepancies. Yeah, um, it's it does. I mean, I know they talk a little bit, you know, they, they kind of, what they do as well is they break down training uh, power, right? So they talk about, doing plyometrics or about doing speed training stuff like this so it's just so varied you know it, it's like um it just doesn't give you i mean they're they're attempting to do one thing and all their research that we're showing says it's just not like that so i, I kind of I understand why they're trying to do it don't get me wrong um but surely a better tool would be to run education courses on the different things when it comes to it the variability of it um and we talk about, you know, you know even the, the very little uh, minute fact of, you know, they don't really talk about sprinting technique, probably the most important aspect of sprinting, mm. you know, um, and then breaking that down even further, the, you know, ability to reduce and absorb force in sprinting, which comes back to strength training. Yeah, no, it, it's, there's a lot to it, you know. Um, so maybe if once again, we'll, we'll kind of probably, if you have any more of the research you want to touch on, and then once again, I'll, ask, I'll throw the same questions at you, kind of what would your recommendations be? um so if you want to crack on with that mate yeah sure and yeah and i I do agree with you in that um yeah they like there definitely is a purpose to this type of research like there's there's a reason to do it but um i just think bali and way in their kind of research they tried to make it sound as if as if their research was more conclusive than it was, I think. Um, and then, as you touched on earlier, yeah, I, I mentioned um, the, the U.S. Air Force in this paper in that basically with the U.S. Air Force, when they were trying to figure out how to, how to build the cockpit of a plane, um, they found what was the average man in America, and they built this... Um, they built this cockpit to fit the average man, and with this their crash rates like went up and up and up and up over the next couple of years and then because they obviously found that this wasn't working what they eventually stumbled upon was um using adjustable seats uh, for what whichever person is in it which reduced the amount of crashes drastically so and i i use that as an analogy for the um the Canadian long-term athletic development model, because I, I feel what they have done is they've done the same as the U S air force in trying to create the average kid, which unfortunately is just not really a thing. Every kid develops at a different stage every yeah. So I do agree with you that I think it's, it's very important to do and ideologically it's great, but at the very moment with the current research, it's just so hard to implement. Um, yeah. So sorry. I, 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 did I answer your question there? No, yeah, definitely. I, I, I even reading this paper, I love that analogy. You know, it's a, <laughs> the crash rate is a terrible way of finding out something, but um, in, on a much grander scale, it does show you a much, I guess, much more devastating scale. It does show you that you can't 
have a one size fits all when it comes to anything. Um, and I know you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm not going to even try to pronounce the name of the guy who um, I think it's Mendez, Mendez Villanova, oh, yeah. maybe that. Um, and they talked about you know pre uh, pre peak height velocity and during peak height velocity. Uh, there was no interference effects when it came to training max sprinting and training max aerobic speed concurrently. And I know, we, you know you touched on that a little bit earlier, but that's just something interesting as well. You know, we're talking about you know we're talking about trying to find specific areas of trainability and blah blah blah, where realistically they could probably train a lot of it all concurrently. I know you touched on that earlier, but I just wanted it was an interesting point to bring back up again. Um, and, you know, the, the, we, we keep touching back on the fact that they don't really talk too much about technique where, you know, having, having some kind of approach where you have kids and you teach them technique and then you add in visual and ver so verbal reactions and visual reactions and competition-like stuff. As you go along, as the technique gets better and better and better, they're going to progress at sprinting. Uh, they're going to get better. Uh, teach them how to, depending on their sport, so give you other basketball, it's mostly based on acceleration. And then, you know, some longer sports where you run maybe up to 60 meters, like soccer or right back or something like that then it's going to change the way you do that. And that's obviously comes into early specialization and late specialization sports and all that kind of stuff. And that's a different aspect altogether. Um, but yeah, it just shows you that, you know, I think your analogy fits perfect, right? You can't have a one size fits all approach where you're going to have some issues. Um, so I guess, is there any, is there anything following on from that, you know, you, you want to talk about uh, like just in general, have a little bit of a discussion about it all. You know, I, I do think um, what you just talked about there um, in reaction times is also actually a great point um, because overall in basketball, in soccer, in the majority of the sports that these kids are going to be playing, there's, there's so many variables at play. Um, and, and if you, yeah, if you take out the variables and start training them for speed, training them for power as the LTAD model, doesn't say but kind of suggests um yeah you you, you might find like they, they you don't know how much their development in terms of reaction times and in terms of these other things that are way harder to measure uh develop you know um and then in terms of other things to talk about yeah i i guess i guess a a big thing was the 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 interference effect between um between like uh, that was shown in that Mendez Villanueva um, article because because yeah like o overall um, it pretty much showed that you're not gonna get that much benefit from purely training sprinting for your sprinting if you've got it as a child if you have a sprint day and then the next day you get them to do some endurance work it's probably not going to harm their sprinting all that much and then that can even go further in doing as we were just talking about with reaction based stuff like skill based stuff mechanics based stuff like yeah so i i think that's that's the biggest takeaway hopefully from all of this is that really um if you're going to coach a kid just yeah kind of work every aspect of it work and just as you said earlier, just get them to move well. There's not much science behind that. It's just having a relatively good coaching eye and knowing what's good technique and what's not good te technique. But ultimately, that's really what it comes down to. Um, but yeah, so I think that's... And actually, I guess one other point to talk about is um, uh, strength training in regards to osteoporosis. Um, I, th I think that's actually one of the one of the big thing, one of the big 
findings that I found from doing this research is that um, in terms of getting a child to do some sort of strength training, because I guess another aspect of this is many parents will be scared of their children doing strength training from a young age. But in reality, as McKelvey stated in his paper, is that 26% of the final adult bone is accumulated during the two years surrounding peak height velocity. So doing some sort of strength work is actually going to benefit the children greatly in terms of, yeah, as you said earlier, coordination, reaction time and everything. But then going further, uh, reducing bone disease, reducing osteoporosis, all of these things. See, I guess that's a, a little talk. talk yeah. about. I don't know if you have any opinions there. No, I 100%. It's actually, it's actually, I would have completely forgot about it if you hadn't brought it up. But yeah, it's um, when you're looking at osteoporosis, you know, most kids develop their, their bone density, maybe through playing sports and, and you know, jumping, landing, accelerations, decelerations, hard stops, all this kind of impact stuff that, you know, is, is working on eccentric strength, say. Um, if you're in a sport that doesn't have that, and the, the best sport I can think of is swimming, then it is a, especially like female swimmers, in, in it's an optimal like it's of, of, sorry optimal importance that you make sure that you are doing some kind of strength training um because they're not getting that natural and if you're in if you don't play sports right if you're not playing jumping landing stuff like that um so which probably becomes more common these days maybe a little bit less we all played sports growing up but uh, maybe maybe a little bit less these days the kids playing sports if you're not having that natural um kind of i guess if you're not getting all that from your sport your jumping line stuff like that then strength training is way more important when it comes to that uh, prevention of osteoporosis later in life and the development of bone density um and like i say swimming is a great example i can't think of anything off the top of my head other than that other than swimming and inactivity i guess because you know there's no load bearing in swimming so if you're not doing some what they call dry land work then you're probably putting yourself at a disadvantage when it comes to bone density um and i guess when we you, you know you touched on the concurrent training, uh, I mean, one of the research papers, I think it was the Belgian soccer one. Uh, I could be wrong there, but one of them anyway, it was like talking about how their squat jump was found to improve drastically in pre-peak height velocity um, from either a plyometric resistance or a combined program. So all three of them work, either individualized, but, you know, we talk about getting the most bang for your buck as kids. Well, why not? if they can do a form of resistance strength training and a form of plyometric training where they're just nailing the basics of plyometric and moving along that linear progression of strength training, if they both increase a squat jump. Um, and then you maybe look at the squat jumps correlation to other lifts and stuff like that. But there are all aspects that, you know, when we touched it, you know, once again, going back to this one size fits all, you should train this. And to be fair, they don't state that, for best of my knowledge, they don't state that you should only train speed during this time you know they say you am i right in that they don't just state that they say you can train other things as well but that's the most optimal time to train speed yeah 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 oh yeah yeah that's what they yeah they do yeah i, I guess depending on the paper it, it depends on how specifically they they say when to train um yeah yeah right. I, yeah and, and i i do yeah I, I guess if you talk to these researchers in real life they're probably going to be more open-minded about all this but it's when you go through the research paper it, it it looks to suggest that this is exactly what it does which i just think maybe there should be more um yeah just more i don't know information out there really yeah i mean and i think that's the whole rationale behind critiquing anything is you're trying to you know especially i mean when do we learn we must have learned about this maybe in our third year of college mm. fourth year of college would it be um 
And I think me and you both know the variance of intelligent when it comes to any college course and especially SNC. You have some amazing SNC coaches and you have some you wouldn't let, you know, touch go near your team, right? You know, um, so it's an understanding you know, education of, of coaches and how to interpret a data or interpret what they're saying and then relate it back. And this is why this kind of stuff is important because you never know who listens to the podcast. You never know who would get something from it. So I can't, I can't say thank you enough for coming on. And tell me a little bit, who, who, where are you trying to get this published? So I have applied to the Scandinavian Journal of Medicine and Science and Sports. That's the one um, I'm currently yeah. waiting a review. I got it rejected the first time and then I have reviewed it, redid it, and then I sent it back in. So I'm waiting on, on the review now. So hopefully I'll have it actually there um, to read on the internet soon enough. But if anybody wants it, um, I can send it over. If anyone wants, wants to send me their email or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I don't know how many. It's usually like three or four rejections before you get something published, right? Like, you know, you change this, change that. Um, I know they were big on us on with that at UCD for us. Um, one of the guys, so I finished my I finished my master's in 2018, and one of the guys is still trying to get his paper published from okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's for and he, you know, it, um, he's actually coming on to talk about it. He's about to get published, it's about to go. Um, but yeah, so that's you know, it's a it's a long enough process. So but yeah, if, if anyone if anyone wants it, I'm sure that you can they can get in touch with you and, and get it. Um Mate, any anything else you want to talk about or touch on? Doesn't have to be anything to do with the LTAD model, or just anything in general um, before we finish up. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything. Um, I had no other topics. I don't know if you have any other questions or anything. Um, no, and you know, I think you know, it it could be interesting to kind of maybe lay come back on again at some point and lay out some you know approaches. Maybe we'll, we'll take. I know. That, so, how many how many aspects do they cover? I know you went specifically on strength and power. What else do, do they talk about when it comes to training? They have one for aerobic capacity and stuff yeah. like that. Or? Yeah, they talk about aerobic capacity. Yeah, strength, explosive strength, um, and then from there, I, yeah, I think I think it's just coordination. Actually, yeah. So it is actually escaping me at the moment. Um, of all of them, but yeah, yeah, okay. they definitely do talk about other, and there is a lot more research out there in in regarding to yeah endurance areas of trainability. Um, I I think there is coordination areas of trainability is just kind of measuring that is pretty tough. Um, but yeah, so yeah, there there is yeah, more you, out there, yeah, for sure. Go on, go on. Um, yeah, so maybe maybe we can have a chat about that a second time as well. I mean, the coordination one is. Honestly, when we talk about peak height velocity, um, finding ways, uh, and you know who do it really well? Um, people who uh, work with dyspraxia, kids with dyspraxia. Um, so, you know, uh, they tend to, I remember I was chatting to you, this is going back a while ago, but a coach, or sorry, doctor in Trinity, and he was talking about it um, and how it's kind of some of the stuff in the games that he invented with kids who had dyspraxia. And I think there's probably a really good, pathway there to somehow developing coaching strategies for kids post peak high velocity that are now a little bit more clumsy and stuff like that um and you kind of wanted to and i, I think i touched on this oh, a couple couple podcasts ago uh, on one of the basketball ones where like you know we, we we me and you have an idea of you know peak high velocities have an idea of strength training power training all this kind of stuff the amount of skills coaches that don't really know about peak high velocity and what it is now it's becoming 
uh, more less and less of an issue. But when I started working in basketball, every time I mention, you know, especially basketball players who are tall and they're going to have big growth spurts, who don't know that they're, they're just, the, the skill of the sport will be affected by a little bit by their peak height velocity. So, you know, you have to be understanding of that, you know, because you, you have so many kids who go away for a summer before the start of the summer were, were top of their sport, come back and not that they're bad, but they're not what they were because they've grown four or five inches in the summer and, you know, they're trying to get used to their body again. Mm. So having an understanding of that, that uh, psychological approach, um, on a psychological approach and that, that might be more beneficial for an athlete and uh, coach relationship as well to have an understanding that okay you're, de- you're dealing with this particular age range you better have an understanding of peak height velocity and you better have an understanding of what that affects the skills of the sport um that's just a complete yeah. separate issue um so before we finish up today no um as always mate uh, you've got a chance to plug yourself and kind of if you have any other points you want to clarify or anything like that you crack on i think you did a pretty good job so i wouldn't imagine there's any so tell people where they can find you and once again, plug the fact that you write for Elite FTF. Yeah, so yeah, basically my Instagram is noelf918. As I said in the last one, I don't post too much, but yeah, there's an odd lifting video out there. Um, and then I write for Elite FTS. So I don't know there's a bit of a, a profile page there if anyone wants to Google it. And then if you happen to want to, want to get your hands on this uh, paper, let me know and that'll be it. Okay, dude. Thank you so much for coming on, mate, and I'll be in. Thank you for listening today to that podcast with Noel. Um, One of my favorite ones, you know, is breaking down when people do research and write papers. It's always good to get them on, have a little bit of a talk about it. Um, I think it shows that there's some huge flaws within a Canadian LTAD model, but also, you know, there's a starting place for people to, if you understand the research, it's a good starting place for you to start looking at how you want to train your athletes as well. So it does have some things to it that are slightly beneficial. Um, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk to Carl Kilbride, who's a head coach for Basketball Island. We're going to talk to Orla Duffy, who works as an exercise physiologist with MedFit in, in Dublin, in Ireland. Um, we're also going to talk to Darren Siggins about Gaelic hurling. He did some work with the Wexford um, senior hurlers for a few years. And also we are going to talk to Pat Curran, the Kaizen strength coach. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy.